Welcome, Michelangelo. We're we're now rolling. Awesome. Good to be here with you, man. I did not know you you could throat sing, but I had a hunch you could. I don't know why I brought it up, but well, you've been learning it, right? Right, right. And uh, I I was playing my little kalimba off screen, and uh, I think that started jump started the conversation about instruments or being instruments. Exactly. And I I was doing a little throat singing back in the early two thousands when this documentary Jengus Blues came out. Mm-hmm. And you, you hadn't heard of it? I've not. So it's the story of Paul Pena, who was a blind blues musician living in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He was mostly known because one of his songs got picked up by Jefferson Starship. Uh, it was called Jet Airliner. Uh, but, you know, he was just like living in San Francisco. He was, you know, he's blind guy. He was getting robbed. It was just like his life was not that great at the time. Mm-hmm. And somewhere on a little radio station, he picked up a throat singing transmission where they were doing their so you get like the overtones let's see if yeah. I can get the, the deeper one again anyway yeah. sound, sounds like a, a lawnmower or something they do a much better job out there uh, that's that primal rumble with those soaring overtones. And he heard this on the radio somewhere, and he was like, what is this? What is this all about? So he started looking into it, yeah. and he realized that in order to learn their language, like there's no direct translations from Tuvan into English. So he had to go through a Russian translation. And mind you, this guy was blind, right? So he'd go to the library. He'd mm-hmm. find these Russian texts in Braille that he was... He was translating Tuvan to Russian to English all through Braille, and he learned their language, and he ends up going to a throat singing competition in Tuva Tula, the little Mongolian mm. um, country next to Mongolia, which I think Genghis Khan like considered them their own country because of the, <laughs> they had just like such such culture and tradition and traditional shamanism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um it's an amazing movie, especially since you're learning throat singing right now. I highly recommend checking it out because it's really like a triumph of the human spirit, how this blind blues man finds his way to this other world and just gets embraced by the people there and joins their competition as an outsider. It's super cool. What was it called one more time? Genghis Blues. Genghis Blues. I will watch it. Yeah, that's oh, it's, awesome. it's It's beautiful, man. Yeah. Just quick tangent there. Um, Genghis Khan was known to be a warrior shaman who could call the reins because mm. so many times as he would at- do his attacks and I don't condone attacks, you know, but, <laughs> but it is interesting though, that he would carry a weather system with him and maybe it was just strategy, but, but the mythology of it was that when he came, the thunders came and the lightning came and the storm came. Wow. And since they were kind of prepared, uh, the, the Mongols were, were prepared to battle in that, but the other opposing uh, factions were not uh, ready to battle in the rain. Uh, they they seemed to win a lot more, and you know maybe it was that he had uh, some shamanic power and he could call the rains, or maybe he just used it as a strategy that we attack when it rains. But people just started to assume 
that he could control the weather shamanically. It's very interesting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe he just, I mean, that's part of kind of the magician's tactics, I think, is to use whatever is there to your advantage. So if he can make it seem like he was the one summoning it, I actually have a funny story about something like that some years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. We're also talking about like early 2000s when I was living in North Carolina, there was this barn party. And at this barn party, uh, a lot of people were on mushroom chocolates and there was like a psychedelic band playing. And it was like a really cool gathering in the woods. And I met my polar opposite there, this guy who I remember he was just like, he's had these, these, he had this gravitation towards me at first. And he was like, he said I was like Jekyll and Hyde or something. But the funny thing was like, he was Hyde, you know, like I was just Jekylling around. Um, And then like later in the evening, and I only found out about this later, but I was standing by this giant bonfire and this wind was blowing and the flames were just like fanning like flags, you know? Mm -hmm. And he was standing behind me apparently. And he thought in his shroomy mind that he was controlling the winds. Mm -hmm. And then I said something like, I was just speaking into the air. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right already. We get it. Now simmer down, you know? And he thought I was telling him to like (laughs) chill out. And then when we met like a few (laughs) weeks later or something, we like recalled, he was like, I thought you were talking to me. I was controlling. <laughs> I was yeah. controlling the, the fires. No, so, uh, that's a real sensation. I've had that sensation, mm-hmm. and it's weird. It, it, it usually comes as some type of strange affirmation. Um, like uh, one of the examples I remember is you know we were in the park and closing our eyes and getting and doing this meditation with uh, the aid of psilocybin mushrooms, and it was almost as the meditation was hitting its peak and things were getting interesting and some kind of spiritual epiphany started to appear, the wind would just blow and it would just, you would feel it. And of course on mushrooms, you feel a lot more, you feel more sensation, more depth to the sensations, more depth to the senses. And, and it almost does feel like, Oh my God, is like the wind affirming that this mm-hmm. is the correct path, you know, in my mind that, that, that this thought I'm having, this spiritual epiphany, is the one to listen to, you know? Like, it's funny how that works. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, Bob Marley has that song about it, right? The natural mystic blowing through the air. Mm-hmm, exactly. Because what, what is the wind, right? It's just like biothermal friction or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that reminds me of in Game of Thrones where um, the caretaker of Bran, I forget her name right now, but she was like, who controls the winds, if not the gods? And, mm. you know, as a, as a, uh, someone that resonates with animism, yeah. uh, I, you know, when I hear that type of thing, I'm like, I like it, you know? Yeah. And I, I like that you bring up animism in it too, because that's kind of the train of thought that I would be on with it. Like I recall, uh, at Burning Man one year, actually the last year I went, which was 2013, uh, I tried to see B for the first time, which I really enjoyed because it, mm. It brings out a kind of, on the one hand, a kind of animalistic side where I just want to follow my nose. Mm-hmm. Like I want, I just follow smells places. And the other side of it is that it has this, it imbues things with a mythic resonance, including the wind. Like there was a wind that swept through the playa. And as it passed me, it changed my gait. I started walking more like I was like an old man or like I'd broken limbs or something. And I felt that that wind was carrying a charge of like man's monsters and all the, all the broken spirits. Like it was sweeping around and it was sweeping up like broken dreams and lost hopes and stuff. And as it moved through me, I could feel that 
charge moving past me and i was like where is this going and that wind was sweeping it all towards the temple which is where people let go of things that they no longer want so then i was like i guess we're going to the temple as well but just that very distinct mythic resonance on the wind that the wind itself was carrying like a personal charge awesome oh, for sure um well i you know what i love oh, you, we haven't even spoken and and so long and we just didn't even say how are you we <laughs> right into some awesome <laughs> mystical talk but uh i'm glad you're here man thank you for being here and, and how have you been it's been a hell of a journey since the last time we spoke which i think was like earlier in the pandemic right? yeah it was yeah it sure was yeah no it's it's been a hell of a journey since then mm-hmm. and uh it's it's led me to some the winds have swept me to some wondrous places totally which i i live in the jungle in mexico for the last year and change i've been out here uh, about 20 minutes outside of tulum that's like the nearest big town um and it's interesting because the last time we spoke i was taking care of my father in florida who has alzheimer's Uh, and i did that for eight months and then i uh it was time to like get back to figuring out my own life you know as the world started kind of opening up and vaccinations were darting into our arms Mm -hmm. uh and so i i went back to california and i like spent my time going up and down the west coast from like Arizona, New Mexico, California, Portland, looking for home and looking for homies, visiting old friends and places that were home, yeah. but now f- didn't feel like home anymore. So I was really starting to get in this point of like, where do I want to settle? Like, where do I want to be? Right. And over time, I was like, kind of clarifying my vision of what I wanted, which included like a place closer to nature with a fire pit and community and things like that. And then I, I heated a call to visit a snail-shaped house in the jungle in Mexico. And I had been working on some uh, snail illustrations, or snail illustrations, as I call them, <laughs> for a, a story that I wrote in 2004 that I was like, I, I would like to have this fully illustrated. So I started working on that, and then this invitation came to come to the jungle in Mexico to a snail-shaped house. So I was like, well, all the signs align, so let me just go check it out. And I didn't think that I was going to find what I found there, but I found a sense of home and I found community and lots of synchronicity. And Mm. I started to, after like a a couple of weeks of being there, I started kind of, my heart started opening up into this feeling of joy and of happiness. And, you know, the pandemic was kind of a dark time. Like it had its light in there, but it was very much a a dark cocooning chrysalis in a way. Mm -hmm. And so when the light started coming in again, in such a strong way, I was like, I could, I feel I could own it. You know, Mm -hmm. I could say, I could comfortably say, I'm happy, Mm -hmm. you know, and not feel like it was going to collapse at any moment. And then I decided to stick around longer. And it's been like over a year now. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, that sounds to me like one of those spots um, that, you know, people vacation to or it's almost like a dream home, almost retirement, you know, like spot, Um, at least like Tulum and the idea of Tulum uh, resonates to me that way. That's pretty awesome, man. It sounds like quite a destination to be uh, posted up at. It is. It's the thing is like Tulum, the town doesn't interest me as much because there is a lot of it's a lot of tourism and also like a lot of psychedelic tourism and mm-hmm. it's just you know it's it's 
it's it's a uh, yeah. I don't know if you watched Holy Mountain, but there's this. Mm-hmm, I've seen it. The, there's that town at the base of the Holy Mountain, you know, yeah. <laughs> with all the circus fanfare and people are like, some people they for them that's enough, you know. They're like, we'll just stay here. Mm-hmm. So you can go to Tulum and you can go to the Bufo Sanctuary where they have like posters of. Joe Rogan and Mike Tyson and all these people that have done Bufo and you can just stop in and sit in a teepee and <laughs> smoke Bufo and then like be on with your day, wow. you know, like have a quick, a quick death and on with your day, which that doesn't really appeal to me as much. Um, um, but I'm like, I'm like 20 minutes outside. I'm just like deep in the jungle right. and we have this amazing property. The architect lives on the property as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's a place, uh, it's like an artist residency. We call it a uh, freeform art farm or art lab slash library mm. in the jungle. And it's uh, it's really, it's like eco in action out here. So there isn't a lot of like worldly distraction. It's just, we're very much in nature and um, it's, it's inhabitants make themselves known little by little. Mm. Like we have one of my favorite things here that I notice whenever I go to civilization is missing is just the life in a lifeless room Mm. so there's you know tarantulas and scorpions that need escorting out sometimes but there's also little giggling geckos on the walls so every once in a while you'll hear from a corner of a room you'll hear (laughs) which is the the lizard's laugh track and it always comes timed at like perfect moments with a little luck we'll hear it punctuating our conversation today as well that's beautiful yeah, little little spirit animals. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's all it's all spirit animals around here. Totally. I love that. Is it um is it, you know, I I don't know. I'm not much of a, a well-traveled person other than inside the states. Um but is it like affordable to live there or is it like expensive vacation property type? You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's no it's first of all your dollar is worth about 3 times as much out here. Okay. Although Tulum, they call it the Pink Panther because it's the most expensive part of Mexico. Oh, okay. So if you're like in Tulum, there's a lot more like U.S. style prices, but generally things are cheaper oh, here, cool. okay. uh, which is also great because I have like modest savings that I brought with me here that have stretched for <laughs> as long as they have, you know, with some upkeep along the way. Totally. But yeah, no, it's 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 much more viable to live out here, but also like the way we're living, it's a very humble humble life it's like it's almost like glamping but it's it's still like a few (laughs) a few steps up from that awesome well i'm glad to hear it it sounds like it's a great uh outpost and a place to kind of stay connected to nature and creating and i know that that's one thing that you love to do um for the listeners to how would you just introduce uh, what you do, you know, you're, you do so many things. You're very much a multidisciplinary artist, but, um, how would you say, uh, what you do? Well, my tagline of my, so I have a podcast called self portraits as other people. And the tagline for that, which is now also kind of the tagline for my whole shtick is where the limits of language meet the fringes of reality. So through, um, various modalities of art, uh, whether that be visual art or writing or filmmaking or music or podcasting, I explore kind of that liminal realm where the limits of language meet the fringes of reality mm-hmm. because you know, it kind of comes down to that old idea that new language prompts new realities and new realities pr- like require new language. So I kind of skirt that line and try to see if we can... Um, find more expression for 
seemingly inexpressible things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I resonate with that. I feel like that's kind of what the podcast is for me as well, which is this place to kind of, you know, explore the ineffable. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I've had these experiences. So many of my guests have had these experiences that really words cannot capture. Words can't do it any justice. In fact, the more words you try to put on it, almost the more you're detracting from how mm-hmm. impactful it is. Um, but it's still, I think, worth it to try, um, especially in a in a container that it's uh, welcomed at, you know, like at, at the yeah. beginning, I used to try to do this at the at the Starbucks or at the the dinner table with my family, and I I realized, you know, there needs to be a set and setting for even these kind of discussions. Um, so I kind of like to create that container with the podcast, um, and it, that's been a you know, tr- tr- trial and error thing with like, where are these conversations welcome? Where are they not welcome? Sometimes you'd be surprised mm-hmm. where they're not welcome. It could even be a best friend, someone you've known your whole life practically, and they're just not on the wavelength. So it's just like, huh, I, I can talk to you about everything except spiritual epiphanies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it because there there's like a dogmatic filter or something or something that might challenge the way that they've they've worded absolutely it's just like their, a, their own structures of reality yeah, it's a lack of uh resonant not resonance it's a lack of experience in the same realm you know like yeah we'll just use like the 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 dinner table with a family situation um you know they grew up different generation not really uh part of the psychedelic uh renaissance uh either of them the first one or the new one and so that it just doesn't land. It just they don't understand what what we're talking about. And in fact, it can maybe make them worry because right, the paradigm right. that they're in is so different. And it's about material success and security, and not let's you know, as you said, um, you know, try to express the inexpressible, so to speak. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the material success. And, and safety and all that stuff is also has its place and its importance. And I think sometimes when we try to spark up these kinds of conversations with people that, uh, that are in a different mindset mm. about it, uh, there's other ways, I think, that we can bridge it, the gap, you know, whether that be like uh, if we're talking about dreams, for instance, like dreams are kind of like a little psychedelic journey that, that we all experience naturally. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, and that also can be something that people <laughs> don't want to talk about because it's also hyper personal. Or, but then we have other collective assets such as books or films, or it might be easier to broach conversations, kind of ontological groundwork with people by finding common denominators, like talking about films or ideas in films or books and things like that. Totally. Yeah, I do. I do do that. You know, with. With some of the buddies I was mentioning earlier, um, we can definitely get there through music, philosophy, and filmmaking. We can start to express the ideas, but I agree with your point um, that you had said a little bit about dreams being quite psychedelic as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Dreams are actually one of the, the things that initially I started to question what is going on with dreams because um, dreams you know, like the, the basic understanding of dreams is our mind is kind of sorting and filing our memories. 
Um, and we're getting right, that's the, the daydream residue. Yeah. Emotion, yeah. Yeah. It's sorting and filing our memories. And, and that's why we, we have these kind of weird notions and things bumping into each other in our consciousness. Um, but like when certain things in dreams happen repeatedly, like, um, recurring dreams, that mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be so much chance or, file sorting when a dream continues night after night after night which it did for me as a child you start to wonder is there some message in here i'm supposed to get you know mm. what do yeah. you think about dreams well there you know there's the the day residue review notion that you proposed but for me it's been there's always been more to it as well um the idea of recurring dreams i mean maybe that's just there's some files that don't fit the filing cabinet, you know? Mm. There's like a, a letter beyond uh, the 26 letters of the alphabet that your uh, dream operator has a difficult time placing, and that's why it keeps bumping into it until it can integrate something there. Mm-hmm. But what's what's been interesting for me is um, notions of active dreaming. So, like, I, I write down my dreams when I remember any of it. Mm-hmm. And finding applications for the information that comes through either by integrating it creatively or by finding reflections of it in your daily life. And that gives like a sense of kind of um, a a synchronistic feedback, which, you know, I've been really into the work of Eric Wargo, who I've had on my show as well, who wrote the book Time Loops and the book Mm. Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, which I would recommend if people are going to check him out to start with the second one yeah um and he's looking a lot uh, through a very rationalist and grounded and um logical lens he's looking at uh precognition through dreams so how your future self communicates with you across the barriers of time and how those messages get encrypted in dreams so it's not like that you'd have a dream literally about what's happening or what's going to happen, but a lot of times the dream is a precognition of your feelings about when you get the news. So let's say, like for example, um, uh, there's a uh, a plane crash, and you have a dream before that happens about a plane crash, mm-hmm. and there's uh, forty thousand people that died. Well, that would be a very big plane. There's <laughs> four hundred people that died in the plane crash, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, a couple of days later, there's a newspaper article that w- that says, you know, uh, 400 people died in a plane crash. Then later you learn that it was actually 300 people and it was a misprint in the newspaper. But your dream contained the misprint because it was actually, it wasn't a precognition of the event, but it was a precognition of you reading about the event. Wow. So, so little things like that are really, really interesting to pay attention to in dreams and it's it's usually little things a lot of times like there have been times when i've had precognitive dreams about uh more specific things but a lot of times the way that wargo puts it it's about how we orient ourselves in time how we navigate through time and a lot of times we would want to give some kind of metaphysical or psychic importance to these instances but what he says it's more about is how it forges these real life connections so it's it doesn't take away from any of the enchantment or magic about it, but it just grounds it back in a tangible and workable reality, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I'm a fan of, of several podcasters and people who are in the field of psychology, particularly uh, Jungian psychology. I know you're, you also know Michael Phillip. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, when I hear his talks with certain guests, it makes me think, and I don't know this myself, but it makes me think that our psyche is able to it's almost like our psyche has access to the future. Um, mm-hmm. Somehow it, you know, we're, we're, we're in this slice of the now. And however, the psyche reaches beyond time and space. And it's not like super accessible to us, but we'll get this little drip almost just this yeah. little drip uh, that, the future is is there and it's going to happen and the psyche is beyond time and space. So we're somehow able to, you know, in certain circumstances, get glimpses of the future. Um, and it's just so profound to think that that some part of us, the you know, some deep part of our consciousness is somehow able to be linked to everything that has happened and maybe will happen. And, you know, I I certainly get glimpses of that in psychedelic experiences, but again, it's so ineffable to be able to express to someone everything that can happen has happened already. (laughs) And, And it's, and even though we're backwards in time compared to how far time goes, that exists and it's out there. Yeah. And that's uh, Wargo actually gets into this notion as well, where he's looking at the unconscious, but more like the Freudian unconscious, the personal unconscious, saying that this is possibly the self or the psyche spread throughout time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talks about the long self. So rather than like your higher self or something like that, he talks about the long self. Mm-hmm. So you get, like, if you think of life as a movie, then you have all these different frames of now, right? These different uh, mm-hmm. cells. And I think of it like a zoetrope that is set in motion. And then as time is set in motion, you see the moving image, but you're actually the whole zoetrope is you, right? Like all the little slices Mm -hmm. spread across time. But what this also brings, because he's actually, it's interesting that he leans more towards the Freudian than the Jungian. And he has some arguments about Jung that I find really fascinating because I hadn't thought of it before, but uh, he tries to bring everything back to not not like a material reductionism, but he tries to bring it back to uh, a tangible understanding. And one of the things that he fits into his notion of a retrocausality, which is the notion that time also streams backwards, that the future influences the past. Mm-hmm. One of the things he brings up in there is the notion of the collective unconscious, which we think of as like this etheric Akashic record store or something, you know, with like a repository of all archetypes and um, memories and and all the thoughts of humanity. But what he says is that actually the collective unconscious is the books on your shelf, specifically the books on your shelf. Mm -hmm. To give an example of how he would illustrate this is, for instance, you'd have a dream about a... um, a tiger attacks you. Mm-hmm. And in the dream, there's like, there's like this archetypal uh, charisma around the tiger, right? Mm-hmm. And so after waking up, you're like, wow, that was interesting. I wonder what that means. And you start looking up 
symbolism right online or in a dream book you know like the books on your shelf is also like online Mm -hmm. but it's it's the things you come in touch with so as you're starting to research about tigers and you learn like oh tigers are about uh power or about uh virility or whatever it may be i don't know what the tiger symbolism that would come up would be but actually the interpretations that you ascribe to it afterwards cast back in time and create the charisma around that dream so rather than like the dream means this as explained in the uh interpretation it's actually the interpretation is casting itself back and coding the dream love whereas if you hadn't looked up so this is where the time loop closes right like you have the premonition of what you're going to be reading about which comes to life in the dream Mm. so it's actually like it takes the day residue review and it like inverts it on itself in a way That might be one of the most profound thoughts out of this, the last several podcasts, like the last 10 podcasts that I've had. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's blown my mind. Absolutely. Because I always thought, and you can see it in traces of my writing where I would like refer to collective unconscious. And it's kind of, it's it's an ontological assumption that we say like, there is some like etheric database that holds all our um, collective uh, unifying themes in its vaults Mm -hmm. but then if you take a moment to think about it it's like is there another way we can frame this where it's not just an airy fairy notion of some Mm. immaterial metaphysical webbing and then by inverting our perception of causality by thinking of it not as cause and effect but that the effect actually Mm. is the cause of the cause in some way love that it's like yeah it's like it's mind-blowing that is mind blowing. Wow. Yeah, I will definitely have to read that book. And uh, I'm familiar with Freud as well, but uh, I'm not super. You know, I'm not super familiar with Jung. Even you know, I, I've yeah, I've heard his. Uh, I listened to the audio book of his biography, um, and I've tried to read the Red Book, um, but it's so heady yeah, that yeah. I can only read like three pages at a time. And then it's so overwhelming that like it takes weeks for me to even come back to the fourth page. So I, I've not been able to work through it at some point. I hope to. the illustrated version is, is amazing. We I have seen a copy it. here I've seen in it. the library and I haven't read it. I've like, I've read little bits of the non-illustrated version, but I just, I like to absorb the information through his artwork, which yeah. is just so incredible. Yeah. And I also, I, I've read his biography, which I think is, it's Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, I think it's called, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good entrance point. Like, I also, I've read, like, a few young texts, mm-hmm. but that one, I think, is easiest to get into because it shows the garden from which his ideas grew, which I think is yeah. so important as well, because it shows it within the context of his biography. Yes, absolutely. You you don't happen to be familiar with his book on Kundalini, do you? I think we have a copy of it here. I've seen it around, but I haven't read it. I've definitely been intrigued by it. I think yeah. it was about ta- Tantra and Kundalini That's and right. maybe mandalas or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I wonder, you know, um, I haven't read it either. Um, I, I read a lot of Eastern texts about Kundalini, have several books and listen to podcasts. I've studied yoga for years and years. Um, but, um, yes, well, it's so weird how, when I looked up Carl Jung's bibliography, like everything he's written, one of the books that stood out to me, um, 
was he wrote about Kundalini and I'm almost like, wow, I wonder what that is. And I kind of think of Kundalini as a a sense of spiritual emergency um, Hmm. for people that there's lots of ways that it's been kind of um, described as to what it is, you know, from the creative force within us that, you know, helps us to create, even procreate, but gives us the, the energy of imagination and the energy of, creativity but 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 again as i said you know even um the kundalini sits at the base of the spine near where we procreate it Mm -hmm. might be that energy that quote-unquote remnant of god you know that exists within us but so many people get kundalini as a bad experience it's a some sense of spiritual emergency or overwhelm could even be likened to psychosis. And it's just so yeah. strange because for me, Kundalini has always been a very elevating and enabling and uh, inspirational um, thing to tap into. Um, but for others, and I, and I get the sense that he's probably going to talk about it as a psychologist in that spiritual emergency yeah. context. Well, I think it's also, it's a timing thing, you know, like I, I don't know the specific instances or people that you're talking about, but I've seen, similar um disaster zones happen like in festival scenes where people have a quote-unquote kundalini awakening Mm -hmm. where all this um this dormant energy gets released and they're unprepared yeah so because it's usually it's through like through psychedelics or through it's not through a they didn't follow a disciplined path to get to these revelations so they don't have the uh, container prepped properly to be able to hold that kind of energy. So then when it releases, mm-hmm. it doesn't know where to go or where to channel itself. So it becomes, right. uh, it can become a catastrophe, but yeah, I'm, I'm more on your train of thought with it where I, I've done a little, I've done, taken like a couple of Kundalini yoga classes, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of breath work and things like that, which is ultimately the breath is the way we're going to tether in any kind of, or harness any kind of, energy you know like mm-hmm. uh we have a friend who was just visiting here who gets very enthusiastic um especially if he's taking a little bit of mushrooms or something like that mm-hmm. and he's just like he was professing how overwhelmed he was he's like oh i'm so overwhelmed i'm so overwhelmed and then i quoted mckenna and said do not give way to astonishment and then my friend echoed himself and said just make it look easy <laughs> and it's like the, the key to that is exactly like catch your breath like don't don't verbalize your overwhelmness in this moment just try to breathe in the overwhelmness and then breathe it back out because that's what like breath of fire is like a rapid upcycling of realities you know like you take it in you put it back out you take it back in you put it back out until you get to this kind of like calm flow where you can you can circulate the information or the energy that comes through 100% and let let the serpents uh, cycle through your psyche totally Amazing, amazing Terrence sound uh, voice, <laughs> especially because I can't hear you. I literally thought I was, or, or sorry, see you. I literally thought I was hearing Terrence. That's, that's amazing. Just, just for a moment, you had Terrence on the podcast, which sometimes we need to raise the dead in order to raise the vibration of the listener. That is, you, you need to do a podcast as Terrence, I swear. Um, yeah, I'll just have him drop in usually. Yeah. I don't know. If I, I feel like if I do a whole podcast like that, it would become, uh, it could become 
become tedious because in the end, I'm not. I'm not Terrence. Totally. I, can't, I can only do him justice for you moments. Could, at you a time. could be a voiceover uh, though, if someone does an animation. Oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. I've thought about it, like because um, I, I can impersonate a few dead psychedelic trailblazers and it's like well that could be quite a service it's like let the dead speak for your product <laughs> with with sheath underwear you can <laughs> i love it i'm gonna keep that in mind i'm gonna keep that in mind yeah yeah but, but i wanted well, to it's, say- it's gonna it's gonna come soon with ai anyway so maybe oh, if i can right. get ahead of the curve and like put a pulse into the voices of the dead i mean that's right. a pretty good sales pitch right there totally totally <laughs> but but yeah on the kundalini note there i think that the reason um you know, so many people are ready for it when they do do the yoga and the breath work is theoretically what the yoga and the breath work is doing is opening the nadis or the psychic energy channels. We can kind of think of it as our nervous system reflected as a energetic sense. Um, you know how we have all these capillaries and we have all these veins and we have these arteries that mm-hmm. carry blood to you know, our whole system, uh, in the subtle body, it's reflected the same way, but it's energy that we carry. And the, and the breath, uh, is able to push that, push that energy to, uh, the entirety of the body. And that's why we get that kind of buzzing sensation after certain breath, um, you know, breath practices. Mm -hmm. But because our body is now open and charged and all of the nadis or energy channels are open that kundalini isn't trying to fit through the tiny straw anymore it yeah yeah, yeah. it's now yeah it's got a web to yeah to travel through and when someone's not ready their body isn't literally their body isn't ready for the amount of energy so it's all trying to fit through this tiny little straw and it's pushing up and that can Mm. be what causes it to be so overwhelming yeah, you get clogged, right? You got to build the vessel in order to be able to hold it. Totally. And it's it's cool because when you said nadis, I remembered because when I originally was introduced to ayahuasca in 2003, the person that introduced me was kind of a uh, a chakra scholar. Mm-hmm. And he had created a particular meditation called Amhabija, okay. which is a the chanting of root notes in Sanskrit. So the entire mm-hmm. Sanskrit alphabet corresponds to the petals on the flower-like chakras, and each petal is called a nadi. Those are the nadis, are the petals. Amazing. And so, as you're chanting this alphabet, you're like ram, 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 like all these variations of mm-hmm. of these sounds. It touches onto different energy centers or different parts of your organs or of your body, and so it unfolds these petals and it opens up the chakras. And from the from a bird's eye view it looks like a mandala. So it's like, Mm -hmm. if you look at it straight on, it looks like the grail, like the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And from the top, it looks like a mandala. So he was proposing that the, the mandala that you see in the psychedelic experience, like in an ayahuasca session or what McKenna called the chrysanthemum spinning, spinning when you smoke your DMT (laughs) is actually a bird's eye view into your own integral light body. Mm. And so then if you know that, which is similar also like um, Jung's idea of the mandala as um, or as or the flying saucer as a kind of mandala, because he wrote that's one other Jung book that I read mm-hmm. back in the day was um, 
flying saucers and the new myth of things seen in the sky. Oh, wow. Where he proposes that the flying saucer or the UFO is similar to the mandala in that it's a emblem of totality of our wholeness, mm. which is what we're striving towards, like the fragmented parts of our psyche to come back into wholeness, which you can also, again, superimpose on what we talked about earlier, the idea of the of our conscious self as a kind of tip of the iceberg, where the unconscious is extended throughout time as this um, subliminal body. Yeah. And so you want to bring it all into wholeness and totality so that you're a full being and you can move through time fluently, right? Absolutely. Uh, with ease as, as self without confusion. Um, and so my ayahuasca experiences were very much the early ones, at least, yeah, looking for the integrity in those theories, like finding the mandala, entering through it and entering into your your own intrinsic light body, which can also then be considered like a vehicle, like a merkaba, right? The mm. body of light through which to uh, travel into hypothetical other dimensions, which might just be other dimensions of the body. Mm-hmm. You know, because the body itself has its own metaphysics, Totally. To it. The body has a mind of its own. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, the body is so much more intelligent than we give it credit for. Um, it, it has its, like, lower level non, non-intelligence, which is those kind of things we almost can't control. You know, like, for example, when someone's addicted to something, they can know very well, this is not good for me. But the, yeah. the kind of lower body... It seems to convince you, no, you still need it. No, you still need yeah. it. And so they're, they're you know, uh, at the whim of what their body uh, is kind of asking or, or uh, yeah, asking for. But as you get a deeper understanding of the body and how it, there's several layers to it, especially the subtle body, the light body, there's even more. I think they're called the koshas. Uh, they're, they're, hmm. they're even called the sheaths, you know, like sponsored by sheath. But, <laughs> but um, The underbody. <laughs> yeah, that there are these, these like, I want to say fractaling, but, but metaphysical bodies, like echoing out of our mm-hmm. physical body. So I agree with that absolutely, and and getting in touch with that is kind of what the the science of yoga is, um, and and how we can learn to harness that lower body, that more physical body, through mm-hmm. awareness of the energetic body and the uh, subtle body and larger bodies than that, even the cosmic body. I mean, what is the right. what is the Godhead? You know what I mean? Like the Godhead is all still you. It's it's just this higher you. It's this. It's, it's it's difficult to describe, but like the experience of the Godhead is something that so many people can access. Um, have you had an experience of that? Yes, I, I would say yes. Um, for me, because I look at it in terms of like psychic interference. Like if my mind is in tune with my body and its need and its wisdom and i can take dictation from that or listen to that i feel like that's me integrated into a larger biological psychobiological matrix Mm -hmm. which i would consider what you're calling the godhead Mm -hmm. or if it becomes like to a cosmic proportion where it feels like there are now like new energetic centers are releasing information or releasing energy for me to integrate into my being Mm -hmm. 
but uh, like I, I've been doing a lot of um, revisiting of um, Julian Jaynes's work, which was the, the last podcast episode I put out. I had a uh, the founder of the Julian Jaynes Society to really unpack a lot of his ideas. But it's helpful to uh, if I can try to sketch out the basic premises, which is kind of a task, but I'll try to make it brief. I think it plays into this too, into how I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Julian James wrote a book called The Origins of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Okay. And that's a, that's a head full right there, but I'm going to unpack it. <laughs> so the notion is, first of all, he takes the first 60 pages to draw a very precise definition of what he means by consciousness because it's one of the most nebulous words out there like so many people have different variations or ill-defined definitions on what it means but he gets very specific by looking at what consciousness is necessary for what it's not necessary for and so on Mm -hmm. and what it comes down to his premise is that consciousness is that which is introspectable it is like uh it's the mind space in which we through which we um, um, we, re- we relate to the world, you could say. Mm-hmm. But what it creates is it creates, um, it's, it's based in language. So as language evolved, we evolved the metaphors of the physical space, which then created a metaphorical space inside ourselves, which is what we would consider consciousness. It's that space in your head where there is a you, an analog you that's doing things as if in the real world, that's like uh, preconceiving of what they're going to do next, Mm -hmm. for instance. But that's not actually you. There's like this analog you, like an avatar of you. Mm. And he proposes that before this model was fully in effect, there was no analog I in there. But what it was, was one side of the brain would create an auditory hallucination, usually of a... um, a chief or a king or your parents or all the way up to the gods. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he looks at this through, mostly through the lens of the Iliad, which is one of the first um, texts that was written down um, after, of course, a long period of oratory recitation. Uh, And he's looking at it that it has no subjectivity in it and that it's every action is based on an order from the gods. So at that time we had kind of this hallucinatory um admonitory system where a part of our biology would verse itself to the language centers in the brain and present itself as a voice of great commanding presence and would tell us what to do when we didn't know what to do and eventually with the advent of uh, especially with with writing it gave us now a way to hear the voices by reading them and it ultimately suppressed the gods as we knew them as the gods and gave us this kind of egoic autonomy, mm-hmm. which still we didn't really know how to make our decisions. So that's where divination, for instance, came about as a way to divine the will of the divine of the lost gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, when I think of the the Godhead or think of um, my totality, what I feel needs to be filtered out are the, false perceptions of self Mm -hmm. and for instance like the addict 
it's a, a misidentification, I think, mm -hmm. with what you were saying, we're calling like the lower parts of the body, I would think of as like the false parts of the mind. Mm -hmm. It's the part of you that feels that you need a certain something in order to feel whole. Yeah. When actually, um, there's a harder, but more rewarding way to get there. Like I had an uncle who was like part of the, the Krishnamurti cult, although he, w he wouldn't like it called a cult, but I mean, sure, sure. <laughs> give up all your earthly possessions to be part of a spiritual community sounds cultish to me. <laughs> but he always had very interesting one-liners, and one of them was, addiction is the choice between who you think you are over who you really are, mm -hmm. which comes down to kind of what I'm saying, you know, it's like if you can disidentify with the parts of you that need something to be whole, mm -hmm. then you can identify with the part of you that is whole. Right. But of course, it's a lot easier, like the way I'm putting it, it makes it sound easy. I mean, it is, there is pathology involved, I think, and it's a, right. Right. It's a long journey of deconditioning. But I, I do think, you know, it's, I think there's been research on that, too, that psychedelics actually could help with that. I've definitely noticed Absolutely. it in whatever small ways for myself, you know, like if I go through like a week of smoking weed where it's not really serving me, mm -hmm. but I'm still not really dropping it. Right. It's like a, a, a psychedelic reset can more easily Absolutely. Um, make that transition. Right. It's almost like the matrix of our mind is the stories that we believe. Like, we believe the story that we have that I am a smoker, I am a drinker, I do these things that, um, you know, it's affirming to yourself um, that you need that to continue and what psychedelics do is they help you rewrite that story and understand mm -hmm. it as simply a story not understand it as reality because like in this matrix that we can find ourselves in and you know that's the majority of the way people live um in this kind of realm of stories that they believe because it's been affirmed back to them through their own actions and the reactions to their actions and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like once we're able to rewrite that story and say, wow, that story wasn't true. It was just a story. Like mm -hmm. psychedelics give you the breadth of mind to be able to see beyond that limited story, that limited matrix that we're operating in. And um, really the trick is, being able to maintain contact with that breadth of mind without the psychedelics, because so many people yeah. will get the download and see and have even inspiration to then forego those stories. But after weeks and months and ex experiences happening to them, the stories can come back and it's, it's, yeah. it's almost just like, you know, the, a law of nature that like after so long, not in contact with that breadth of mind that the, uh, it begins to shrink or it begins to become less accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, that's the thing about, um, expanding the pattern of your habit, you know, like opening mm -hmm. a, then defragmentizing it and then putting it back together in a new way. Like it's, it can link back into its old ways unless you mm -hmm. continue to do the the mindful work on it totally but like that that instance that i was talking about where i'd been smoking weed for a week and I, you know it wasn't really serving me and i wanted to 
kind of forego it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I dropped some acid, mm-hmm. and at the onset of it, I could feel the skin of the weed kind of almost like a straitjacket. It was constricting me. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a a toxic shroud that I needed to shed at the onset of this. And so first, I was just kind of like feeling into it, like noticing it was there. And then my girlfriend whistled, and I came to see her, and she had found a creature. A We have these giant uh, saltomontes here, that are grasshoppers, giant grasshoppers. And she found one that was molting, which means it was shedding its skin. It was dangling upside down, glinting with wetness, crawling out of the skin of its former self. Mm. And... In this moment, my mind was turned completely inside out. Mm-hmm. I was completely absorbed in this brutal and beautiful display as this thing turned itself inside out like a carnal circus tent doing some kind of necrotic acrobatics <laughs> like with its former shell of a former self as its partner. And I too turned inside out because it was a perfect metaphor mm inaction of my own need to shed skin of something that no longer served me or that I had outgrown. Because literally they shed their skin five times until they get to not their final form, but their final size. And so in that moment, it completely abducted my mind into eco inaction and allowed me to outgrow that pattern in that moment. Of course, weeks later, I could pick it up again, but... but it was like a really beautiful moment where it was very clear to me. The metaphor that was presented to me was very clear. And I think that that's an important factor too. Like you have to be able to find the proper metaphor in order, you know, they say like coming to terms with something, which to me implies that you have to come up with the proper terms or the proper metaphor or the proper understanding of it in order to be able to put it away. Cause otherwise you can drop the habit, but the underlying program that originally needed it is still unresolved right 100 percent. and i will say that i think some people that are um you know like that they're maybe not on the psychedelic train yet um I, i would say that they can almost dismiss psychedelics in the sense of saying like you're always going to come back to that thing like let's just use cannabis as an example like if we Mm -hmm. if if we take a psychedelic and uh, have a an epiphany and want to let go of cannabis. My point of view is it is so worth it to recalibrate your system, even if it's just the three weeks that you don't smoke it, to get a glimpse of life without it, to get your own understanding of how you feel without it, even if you come back to it. I think it's a worthwhile cause to to experiment with trying to stop certain things and it could be absolutely could be cannabis it could be tobacco it could be alcohol it could be harder drugs it could be even just negative patterns of laziness or self negative self-talk you know it's like just try to change these things and psychedelics are are great at doing it and even if you come back to it i think it's worth it just to be able to have the inspiration to step away um, and get a glimpse of life from another perspective for a bit and, and not just kind of say, well, if you're going to come back anyway, what, why am I going to do this journey <laughs> yeah. and, and quit to yeah. begin with? Because I'm going to come back to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's always worthwhile to switch things up a little bit. 100%. And also the, um, 
having the integrative tools at hand or ready, you know, just like if you're planning a trip, like you want to have all the tools with which to explore and create at hand, you know, like you might want to have some cool art books laying around or some drawing mm. materials or whatever it is you're going to get into or some like creature crawling out of its skin prepared, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but like, yeah, difficult things that come up, they might lead you back to your old pattern. But then like you, you were talking about yoga, which I remember one year, I think this was an early pandemic. Even I did like two consecutive 30 day yoga challenges because mm -hmm. I was like struggling with a lot of things in myself also like pandemic related and otherwise just the isolation and mm -hmm. the desolation and all that stuff. And whenever it would come up like a few times a day, at least where I was like anxious, you know, mm -hmm. and I would take it to the mat. Yep. And that was like the safe place where I can, like, you just have to show up. That's the hard part. And they always say that too. It's like, well, you showed up, <laughs> the hardest part is over. No, I agree. It? Uh, it's, it's amazing how just sitting in acceptance with how you're feeling changes the way you feel. It's so weird. Just sitting in mindfulness about this is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling uh, restless or I'm feeling impatient or I'm feeling... Uh, anger or I'm feeling resentment, you know, like to just be able to sit and process that you're feeling it, somehow yeah. it starts to dissipate um, in yeah. a short amount of time, literally 10 minutes meditation, 10 minutes doing a yoga exercise or Kriya and sitting with that feeling, uh, it'll lower the volume of that feeling quite remarkably by just being able to accept that you're feeling that way rather than push it down or use a coping mechanism um, yeah. to try and hide that feeling. And that's so rewarding. And I think that's one huge reason I love yoga. It's just so integrative. It's just so, it just makes it so much easier to accept the way things are and the circumstances that you're in and the cards you've been dealt. And sometimes things can feel bad, like it's a bad hand of cards but with the right perspective you can see wow this is actually for my growth that i was dealt these hands of cards and it's actually a positive thing that i need to uh meet this challenge and accept this challenge and move beyond it and it's going to teach me how to be a stronger person for the next challenge amen it's the yeah it's the, it's the disowned parts of ourselves because like anxiety is not one that we like to we like we try to get away from it mm -hmm. and, you know you might try to escape into any number of things from it but it's exactly like you say if you can allow it the space to speak to make itself known where you can just listen to it and accept it and be with it it's uh, more likely to find integration or find solutions yeah solutions are oftentimes built into the problems but you just have to listen to them yeah it's almost like it just wants to be heard and recognized yeah and once you do that it's like okay that's all i wanted i'm gonna go away now for a while you know <laughs> yeah another, another part of my my trip here in mexico was that um i started painting again I was like, when, when I put everything in storage and I had an iPad, I was like, I'm just going to go digital from now on. Like, I don't want any more paintings around and, you know, taking up too much space, blah, blah, blah. But then I came out here and I, uh, I started working in this style that, you know, I, I played with a bunch. It's basically Pareidolia-based artwork, which Pareidolia, for those that don't know, is the like when you see faces in the clouds. It's just random 
data being perceived in meaningful ways. So seeing faces and things and, and characters and shapes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I started making what I call divined designs mm -hmm. where uh, either I or somebody else would throw down random watercolor patterns. And then I very instantly, as soon as the first face shows up, I start tracing it and then it becomes just alive with mm -hmm. characters of um, very diverse expressions. And it's a very liberating way of creating yeah like rather like i spend a lot of years being very painstakingly working at brushstroke speed mm -hmm. uh which you know has been a great training ground but right now i really like the uh ecstatic expression of the random priming and then pulling forth whatever shapes come to the foreground because it's again it's also those a lot of times they're like little perverts or little weirdos or little freaks or they have too many nipples or <laughs> some strange gr twisted grimace on their face but i'm going about it without judgment because i know these are disowned parts of myself and all they want is to be seen yeah. to be acknowledged and to have their little expression node on this canvas or on this paper right. and then it becomes really a matter of giving them that venue watching how they relate to how, the, how their expression ripples through the relation with all the other ones which are all born of the same primal fabric yeah. like there's just so much beautiful metaphor um metaphysical metaphor worked into the technique and the expression and people really responded to it as well because it's it's more fun than just fine art, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that gets lost. And it's it's fun with trauma at the same time. It's finding uh, a pleasure in, in expressing the parts of ourselves that we might be ashamed of mm -hmm. and finding, you know, returning to that, that state of, of innocence and play. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that made me think about how I feel um, as someone who identifies with the idea of karma that creativity and expression through creativity, like uh, drawing or painting, for example, is almost the best, cleanest way to burn karma. Mm. Um, so, I like that. Yeah, as we come, obviously, because feel, yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's, that sounds totally. right to me. <laughs> yeah, well, we come into this life with karmic baggage. None of us are free of it. Um, maybe, maybe the Dalai Lama, you know, um, but, but certainly he has a, a karmic expression or a karmic yeah. imprint as well. You know, um, we all have karma that we're here to work through and, you know, the idea in, uh, Buddhism and certain yogic, uh, philosophies is that there are things that we more or less failed at the last life. And so we're here to now learn the lessons and we will keep returning to learn the lessons until we learn them. Um, and and the, the, the better we learn them and express them and, and integrate these lessons, the uh, cleaner rebirth we will have uh, with less kind of karma to burn through. Um, so I think that, that actually creation is at the root of everything. That's why we're even here is creation. The, the, the whole reason we're even alive or that the earth exists or that space and time and all these dimensions exist is creation is the force moving through it all. And mm -hmm. for us to use that very primal, primordial, ancient, uh, original force to be able to express that karma that we're burning. I don't know. I feel like there's, there's kind of maybe weak ways to burn karma. 
and then there's powerful ways to burn karma. And I just feel like the creative act um, is one of the most powerful ways. And not only because you express it and work through it, but other people on the receiving end, the person seeing mm-hmm, the painting, yeah. that it'll yep. give them some glimmer, perhaps, of something that they need to work on. So you're also making a, a signpost for people to burn karma themselves with your work. Yeah. Well, it's again, it's that coming to terms, right? So you're actually, by whatever you're creating, you're creating new terms or terminology by which people get to mirror their own states and get them closer to clarity. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you conceptualize karma? Because um, I know the word means action. So I think of it less in the sense of like individual souls reincarnating, like jumping from body to body over time, and more of how action impacts the world and leaves the world a certain way, which then is for us to deal with the consequences in future generations. And perhaps even mm-hmm. like uh, the, the genetic accumulation mm-hmm. of like what our forefathers did and what was done to them. Sure. How we carry on with that. I'm curious your, yeah, it's not, your take on it. It's not far off from that, but you know, I don't really like to say anything is a law. It just feels almost too certain. But I feel like that might be one of the best words to use in this example as to what karma is. And it's, 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 I'll just say it's the law that for every action, there is a reaction. And that means that we are at the root, the cause of the things happening to us, even when we feel like a victim, even when something seemingly was happening to us, um, that's coming from some outside force. It really feels like, why would that person do that to me? But in the idea of karma, it's that some action that you put out into the world created that reaction, even if it doesn't seem aligned. And sometimes it takes a psychedelic way of looking at the world for you to see how it is aligned or, or how maybe some way you were bounced back ricocheted out there and then bounced back at you for you to learn the lesson about what you did and so i kind of think of that as as karma as it's just the reaction to your own mm. actions and burning karma can simply be sitting in still meditation silence because you're not acting therefore you know there you're not adding new karma so mm. um but but in another way, karma is something that follows us lifetime to lifetime. Um, and the actions we took in our past life create um, things that, are, that we're going to have to deal with in the next life. Right. That's, oh, it's almost like an original sin concept. A little bit, but I wouldn't say it's, it's bad or good. It's just, it's, yeah, it's I, neutral. I like the idea of burning karma. Like I liked when you describe sitting in stillness because you almost become the furnace right. through which past action um, metabolizes. Hundred percent. And I, and I agree too. Like through creativity, it's almost like you get to simulate relation by multiplying yourself. You know, mm-hmm. like now your interaction is not so much with the world as it is with like a replication of yourself through sound or through image or through word or through whatever it is mm-hmm. uh, where you can, you can come to these resolutions or you can take a bottled up emotion and unleash it in a safe way. Right. 
where it doesn't where it does no harm and where it might even create catharsis for somebody else like if you're like making metal music or something as a release mm -hmm. for your own anger so that you can be a more peaceful person in the world and also allow uh, a mosh pit full of heshers to thrash about to it and get their catharsis and community that way then yeah i'd mm -hmm. say that's that sounds like burning karma to me yeah also a good name for a metal band burning karma i oh, love that for sure yeah another thing is this is kind of a more maybe base reality mundane kind of reality way to look at karma but we've all heard that term karma is a bitch um and it's it's that way because so many times ways that we act and make other people feel so many times we're going to be on the exact opposite side and feel what they felt in a whole different way um, I remember one of the first times this happened to me, it was because, uh, I was, um, in this situation with a relationship in high school where I felt this way about the girl I was with. And I was kind of like, uh, I need to end this. Um, I don't really, you know, I'm not really resonating with, with this person anymore. It's just not my cup of tea anymore. I thought maybe it was, and uh, it, it ended up really hurting that person in, in, a, in a way that, you know, of course, I didn't intend. I was just like, uh, it's just not for me. I'm, I'm sorry, right? But like that, yeah. that hurt that I inflicted um, became a karma for me. And then years later, exact same thing happened to me. And I felt that exact same hurt. And I understood that hurt now in a first-person perspective first person experience mm -hmm. that I had inflicted on that um, person. And now I'm in the same exact situation. <laughs> and that was, yeah. you know, that that's happened to all of us, I'm sure. And it's going to continue to happen. And that's why we just need to be as delicate and mindful as we can with these things, you know, to not create such ricochet with our actions, you know, just try and be very, I don't know, peaceful and, and non-invasive and just, these are, you know, ideas that come up with yoga and the uh, the different ideas of, of, you know, like don't steal, uh, don't be greedy. You know what I mean? Like don't do mm -hmm. these things that we know aren't going to do us good because it's going to come back to us in a way and it's going to it's going to burn us, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of, you know, what my mother taught me as a kid, which is like, think of the neighbors, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like if you're putting your music too loud or something like this, be the, the mindfulness of others and how others might be affected by your actions, I think is a good, that's good, to, good upbringing. Right there. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So once I started to get that understanding and I don't mean to sound like I'm up on a high horse now, but, but I, I just feel like I navigate the world in a different way mm -hmm. now. Uh, and really just try to be as chill as possible. You know what I mean? For lack of a better yeah. word, just, just be chill, man. You know, like it's, I don't know. It seems yeah, to be I mean, worth yeah, it. If peace is your, is the outcome you're wishing for and one that you can hold within your vessel, I think that's, you know, you can't really go wrong with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know brother that you're just releasing a new book and I did want to discuss it. Um, I got a copy. Thank you so much for that. It's super amazing. I love the art. Um, are you the artist on this book as well? Yes. Yes. I did. So the last one that I put out, I had, um, 35 artists contribute to it. Okay. And this time I did everything myself for like, I wrote it, I illustrated it, amazing. I did the layout and design and, 
every aspect of it. So I am fully responsible for, for, for whatever reaction, whatever karma it generates, which I think will be positive momentum generally. Mm-hmm. You know what I actually started to think, because I know that you've collaborated with Morgan Sorn. Um, mm-hmm. I almost see a similar style uh, of your work and his artistic depictions. So I almost wondered could Sorn have made some of these or maybe are you influenced by Sorn or maybe y'all just tapping into the same ethos, uh, you know? I, I think probably some of the, of the latter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think one of the reasons that uh, I originally was drawn to him or the reason that we became friends was because there was a, a certain commonality. Mm-hmm. Like we're definitely, we're, we're exploring different things and we have our own styles, but there is a certain um, uh, common relating to you know we're both multimedia artists as well um so yeah i definitely think that you know we drink from the same well Mm -hmm. and at the same time there's probably been cross-pollination over time as well but not on a uh, necessarily on a conscious level got it got it yeah but but i take the compliment for sure oh of course um (laughs) so the book is called inpatient transformations i'm just curious what is your take on what that means the writing so it's kind of i call it a miscellany because it's all it's artwork and wordplay and it's like very miscellaneous it's got poems and flash fiction and micro essays and Mm -hmm. prayers and spells and and all this kind of stuff that i've collected over time and started putting together into this volume Mm -hmm. and looking for kind of a through line through it all and it seemed uh, our relationship to language and to time are a big theme throughout it and a few different stories in there they they seem to speak to me about uh impatient transformations so mm-hmm. it's something you see it's, it's funny actually we were talking about like the kundalini awakening and the kind of disasters that that sometimes creates when somebody's not ready for it mm-hmm. there's um on a transformational path you have to be as present as you can with every minor adjustment. Because sometimes we want to just jump to the absolute, you know? Like, yeah. we uh, we want to um, make a big change or, or um, act or lash out from a peak experience. But it takes just a little more subtle level adjustment sometimes and uh, cultivation of patience mm-hmm. to make the transformation successful. Sure. It makes me think there's a good example of an impatient transformation is the talking head song seen and unseen, I think it's called, or seen and not seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know that one off of remain in, in light? I don't know it, but I, I do. It rings a bell, but I can't. It's basically, it's, it's David Byrne talking over a, a little beat and he's talking about this guy that um, was thinking of his perfect image and he saw some faces in magazines and he picked like this little button nose and mm. these beady little eyes and this little smile and everything. And he held that image in his mind mm-hmm. as he starts to transform into that. But then halfway through, he starts to consider that maybe he made the wrong choice or he shouldn't have, you know, like yeah. <laughs> this kind of thing where you're like in the middle of a process and you begin to doubt it. Yeah. And and the uh, often absurd and hilarious consequences of such a thing. Mm-hmm. So I was like playing around in uh, in those thoughts a lot. Mm-hmm. Love it. Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, thumbed through most of the book and read through many of the poems. Um, my personal favorite, and I wondered if maybe you'd read it for us, um, was So Now Then. And the, uh, yes. and the reason that this one sticks out to me 
so much is it is such an apparent that the idea that you put in this poem is so apparent in almost every psychedelic experience I've had that we are in the pinnacle of the now. It's always eternity. Like whether it's dark or light out, we start to think it's day or night or it's some, you know, like we're on some cycle and the, t- the time is this circular thing that just keeps spinning almost like a clock, but it's not. Time is now always. and, and now a clock. Yes, and you very much capture that in this and, and other poems as well. But but if you happen to be able to find it, it's on page 31. Yeah, I, I have it here. I would right love in front to of and, read it. Yeah. And it's funny because this, it's kind of, a, I'm reflecting on a sentiment of, um, like during my own kind of spiritual and psychedelic awakening mm-hmm. uh, around 2001, that's when I started reading a lot more uh, like, you know, Alan Watts and, and all these kinds of thinkers mm-hmm. where the notion of the now mm-hmm. came into my awareness. Like before then, that was never a thing. Like there's now, whatever, you know, but yeah. suddenly like the now was a state of being that I was like gravitating towards. And I feel like when you have that first awakening, like that is the 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 newest nowest now. And so this is kind of a reflection on that. And it's called, So Now Then. Mm-hmm. Everything happened more than 10 years ago. That's when the now, being in the now, came into being for me. The now is so 10 years ago. There is no now, more now than then. Then again, now was always so ahead of its time. Love it. I love it. That's the the thought that I get so many times. You know what I mean? You really right. captured it. Great job. <laughs> yeah, I try to do it in a in a playful way where uh, as your eyes scan the page, there's it makes you question all these little commonplace terms like now and then and the ways that we we use them, you know, like saying like mm-hmm. so now then. It's like so now then. It's like the 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 paradoxes coming together oh, in a yeah. uh, conjunction of opposites yeah i would love to just kind of give my interpretation of the art paired with that verse oh yes um and and you can tell me if i'm on or not or and explain what it means but but to me it is almost a a psychedelic deity that is beyond space and time but it's channeling down into reality and that kind Mm. of um portal we almost see is you know like the dimensions of space and time, but that thing is just ever present, ever amazing, almost like Krishna. You know, if you've ever read the mm-hmm. Bhagavad Gita, how Krishna reveals his true form, and it is this kind oh, of. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of this strange, almost scary, almost overwhelming thing to even perceive. But at the same time, it has this power and this beauty, but it is so beyond space and time and our thoughts about what could exist. Um, but, but that, you know, that this artwork kind of makes me feel like this being is out of space and time and it's eternal, uh, but, but it, it's channeling down into the dimensions. I like that interpretation. I honestly, I hadn't tried to interpret the image myself, but as you're speaking to it, I like what you're saying, and I'm I'm doing my own little interpretation here, where I notice um, 
it, it makes me think of the idea of a free fall. Like if you're free falling from somewhere to somewhere, but you've lost sight of where you fell from and you've lost sight of where you're falling to, mm -hmm. you, you're kind of like floating in midair and you can't tell if you're falling up or down. Ah. And so that's also what the, the tensions of time condition in us, right? Like we have a past and a future mm. so that the now is kind of tethered at the intersection of the two. But if you take those notions away, then you're just in free fall of eternal now. And I feel like this character is kind of in that space because there's the arrows that are like grounding it out and pulling it down, but also the arrows that are like lifting it up and then a kind of flailing of many arms, mm. some of them even dangling from what looks like the ears. Yeah. So even the, the, the ears are feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. I love that. Amazing, man. Well, the book is Impatient Transformations by the Ungoogleable Michelangelo. Thank you so much for being here today, man. Uh, amazing talk. My pleasure. As always. Yes. Where can people yeah, find always the a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find the book and find your work? So if you the easiest place where you can find all of it in one place is theungoogleable.com. Mm -hmm. And then there's the section called uh, theungoogleable.com slash books mm -hmm. where you can uh, get your copy of the book. There are only 300 copies totally in existence. Uh, so by the time this airs, hopefully there will still be a couple of them left for the listeners to feed upon. Absolutely. And feel free to reach out to me and let me know what you think. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll link uh, Michelangelo's, uh, you know, handles down below in the bio on the instagram promotion as well so definitely follow him check out what he's up to is an amazing multidisciplinary artist bringing just beautiful worlds into existence so thank you so much for what you're doing and thank you so much for being here today brother thanks so much for having me it's always a pleasure